I Could Murder a Cocktail, Episode 3, Mary Bell. Hi, and welcome to I Could Murder a Cocktail, Episode 3. This week we're going to be talking about Mary Bell. I'm Connor. I'm Molly. And I'm Ellie. And this week's cocktail will be the Bloody Mary. The ingredients are vodka, tomato juice, Worcestershire sauce, Tabasco, salt and pepper, lemon juice, shaken with ice. You can find the exact measurements on our social media. So shall we uh, give it a try? Yes. I, I'm not going to lie, I have been drinking this the, the whole way through. I'm also not going to lie and state that I never had a Bloody Mary because I hate them. I think they're gross. So I've got carrot, apple and orange juice with lemon juice and lots of vodka. Because I just will not, I will not drink a Bloody Mary. <laughs> That's fucking gross. <laughs> Yeah, see? <laughs> Doesn't it just taste like pasta oh. sauce? I also did, because mm. I made it the way I like it, Con, and I like quite a lot of Tabasco, I quite love, a lot of pepper. I love Tabasco, but Molly hit the nail on the head right there. It's like pasta You'd sauce. put yeah, pasta drink, in it, wouldn't you? Yes, I would quite happily cook a pasta in this. You know when you accidentally spill pasta sauce and you just kind of like wipe it up with your finger and you're like, mm, like cold pasta sauce? Mm. That's so, what I feel like. <laughs> I, I hate it. I really. I've never felt such a hatred. Well, for it was a drink. that day that we went for brunch, and I was like, <gasps> we were like, oh, we'll get cocktails. We and went I was like, for oh. brunch, and I wanted to be so sophisticated, so I was like, Ellie, let's have bloody Marys. and then Ellie decided to order one just in case I didn't like it, and I tried it, and I was like, oh, that's fucking disgusting. <laughs> that's really, really disgusting. And then I had an apple spritz, which was like really out of place because it was like raining and it was like, like 10 a.m. <laughs> in Witchurch but I still enjoyed it more than I ever could have enjoyed a Bloody Mary. <laughs> See even you don't like it. <laughs> oh no that was just Tabasco. Okay. I'm kind of glad we've done this though because now we can never have to have one on the podcast ever again. <laughs> That's really sad. I love a Bloody Mary. Well, Bloody Marys always make me think Christmas morning, me and my dad, well, I say Christmas morning, Christmas afternoon, me and my dad always have a Bloody Mary. Uh, as Connor said, we're talking about Mary Bell. Mary Bell was born on the 26th of May, 1957. Uh, she was convicted in December, 1968, of the manslaughter of two boys, Martin Brown, who was age four, and Brian Howe, who was age three. She was 10 years old when she killed Brown and 11, 11 years old when she killed Howe making her one of Britain's most notorious child killers. We're going to mix it up a little bit this week, and I'm actually going to talk about the crimes first of all. On the 25th of May 1968, the day before her 11th birthday, Mary Bell strangled four-year-old Martin Brown. Sorry, I just realised how quickly that actually got into it. Yeah, <laughs> normally we have a bit of a build-up, but now you're just like, murder! <laughs> like... Murder, murder, <laughs> it's the right skill. And that is from Jekyll and Hyde the Musical. Straight into murder, straight into Connor making it a musical reference. <laughs> Mary Bell strangled four-year-old Martin Brown in a derelict house. She was believed to have, to have committed the crime alone. The police were mystified because besides a little blood and some saliva on the victim's face, there were no obvious signs of violence. There was, however, an empty bottle of painkillers on the floor near the body. In the absence of any better information, the police assumed Martin Brown had swallowed the pills and his death was ruled an accident. And I guess during those times, and this is kind of in the slums of Newcastle, yeah. it wouldn't have been a massive surprise or a shock if that is the kind of thing that would happen. They were living in slums, most of the houses were abandoned, yeah. things were left there. 
if this tragic accident had happened, people wouldn't have assumed it was much more than an accident. Yeah, because you, I mean, you'd never want to think that any sort of foul play was involved. So you would, you know, you see that, cr- like the crime scene, you would see child, empty bottle of pills. It would be the natural assumption. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Martin's family may have started to suspect otherwise because Mary Bell began showing up on their doorstep in the days after Martin's death asking to see the boy. So his mother gently explained to her that Martin had died, but Mary said she already knew that. She wanted to see his body in the coffin, which is quite troubling to to hear. Even if, like, at this point, obviously, nobody thinks anything's happened. Yeah. That's such a... That must be such a strange thing for that mother. She's like, oh, oh, she doesn't understand. Yeah. And then, no, I, I, I know he's dead. I want to see him anyway. And I think this is one of the points where I find, like, reflecting on it, trying to decide whether she understood what she was doing or not. Definitely. I think this is one of the most difficult points to understand because she understood he was dead, yes. but she still wanted to see the body. So it's so difficult to try and understand her thought process during yes. this time. Yeah, it must it's... have been so difficult for the mum. Like, you've tried as an adult in the UK from the age of 12, am I right? Or around about then? There's kind of not a set age, I don't think. I think, I think it, depends it depends on, on the, the circumstances. Crime, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, around that age is where it starts to be. There's a point at which we understand that people understand what they're doing. And yeah. Yeah. Like, my nan was telling me she was putting the, you know, the, the dog was put to sleep and it was still a question, like, I couldn't figure it out at that age. Yeah. As to what that meant. Yeah. It's such a difficult age anyway. I mean, you're growing to become more of an adult and then commit these horrible crimes. Mm. And it's like, you just, I don't think, and especially the more we tell you about this, I think the harder it becomes to distinguish whether she did or didn't understand. Yeah, I think it definitely like blurs that sort of line. Between Martin's murder and then the second killing, Mary Bell and a friend, Norma Joyce Bell, they're not related, just FYI. But it is, I assumed, first of all, that they must have been related. No, they're not related. Yeah, I know, but I assumed that they would because, I mean, it's a smallish place. Yeah. They were around the same age. I kind mm. of assumed they went to the same school. I kind of assumed they would be. So when I heard there was no relation at all. It was quite, yeah. I, thought, but, I was like, oh, like, when I first read it, I was like, oh, there must be sisters or cousins yeah. or whatever. And then it's like, and everywhere I read it was like, in brackets, no relation. relation. (laughs) Yeah, okay. I think everyone assumed. Uh, So Norma was 13 at the time. They both broke into and vandalised a nursery in Scotswood, which is where they grew up, leaving notes that claimed claimed responsibility for Martin's killing. The police dismissed this incident as a prank. Uh, I've got a couple of quotes from uh, what they actually wrote there which is, we did murder Brian, fuck off, and I murder so that I may come back. Isn't it? It's chilling, isn't it? And they both, like, in the trials, like, blamed each other. Yeah. But to think of those things, to write. Yeah, to actually say, like, to to write those things down. Oh, it's creepy. Like, no offence to anyone with small children, but little kids are quite creepy anyway. Yeah. Not all the time, but sometimes. Most they, of the time. They are, yeah, they're quite creepy. Yeah. So to, for a small, <laughs> quite a young child to write something like that, that's like, oh. That's the kind of thing you see in a horror movie and you're like, get out. Yeah. Get out while you can. Run like, away. That's creepy. The policeman yeah. bends up to pick up, bends down to pick up the note and you're like, oh, shh. <laughs> it's, it's happening. <laughs> 
Mary began telling fellow classmates that she had killed Martin Brown, but because she actually had a reputation of a show-off and a liar, nobody took her seriously. That is actually until another boy turned up dead. On the 31st of July 1968, the two girls took part in the strangulation death of three-year-old Brian Howe on Wasteland in the same Scotswood area. Police reports concluded that Mary Bell later returned to his body to carve an M into the boy's abdomen and used scissors to cut off some of his hair and scratch his legs. When Brian's sister went looking for him, Mary and Norma offered to help. They searched the neighbourhood and Mary even pointed out the concrete blocks that actually hid his body, but Norma said he wouldn't be there and she moved on. I've got a quote here that Mary said, I don't know at what time, I don't have a date for it. Brian had no mother, so he wouldn't be missed. This is like another point that you come back to with, did she understand or didn't she understand? That yeah. sounds premeditated to me. It sounds yeah. like she found someone that wouldn't be missed. Mm -hmm. Like, that's where I'm like, okay, it doesn't sound like a child thinking they're doing an innocent one-time act. That sounds like she understands the consequences. Yes, definitely. Yeah, because that's... So I've actually got another quote here. After they were caught, Norma was quoted as saying, she wanted Pat to have a shock. She wanted her to find the body. So Pat's obviously the sister. That's terrifying that she's... 10, no, 11 at this point, isn't 11, she? 11, yeah. And she's got that in her head, like, I want this to happen. Uh, this is, like, the outcome that I can see. That's yeah. not, I don't know what's going on. That is fully, this is what's happened, and this is what I want to happen next. This is the game that I yeah. want from this. So when Brian's body was finally found, the neighbourhood was panicked. Two boys were dead in as many months. Police interviewed local children, hoping that someone would have seen something that would lead to a suspect. Mary and Norma did a poor job of disguising their interest in the investigation in their interviews with the police. Both of them acted strangely. Norma was excited and Mary was evasive, especially when police pointed out that she had been seen with Brian on the day of his death. On the day of Brian's burial, Mary was spotted lurking outside his house, she even laughed and rubbed her hands together when she saw his coffin. Oh, it's so freaky. Oh. It's like uncomfortable, isn't it? It's like, oh no, like it is. And it just builds such a hard picture to try and understand what oh i just i can't even put it into words. It's so, so creepy. You kind of swing back and forth, don't you? Of like, did she understand? Did she not? was that just a child like because when kids sometimes when they do something wrong you know you say to a kid did you eat that chocolate cake they got cake all over their face and they're going yeah. no no i didn't do it yeah. and then they'll giggle of like oh I've, I've got away with it is that just her reaction of being like oh i've done something naughty and i've got away with it or is she actually like an evil cold-blooded killer right. yeah. yeah does she understand the permanence of death yet does she know what i think she's that's the question and... yeah i think that is the yeah. question uh so the police called mary back for a second interview and perhaps sensing the, the investigators were closing in she made up a story about having seen an eight-year-old boy hit brian on the day that he died she was she said the boy had been seen carrying a pair of broken scissors this was Mary's big mistake. 
the mutilation of the body with scissors had been kept from the press and from the public. It was a detail known only to investigators and one other person, Brian's murderer. Both Norma and Mary broke down under further questioning. Norma then began cooperating with police and implicated Mary, who herself did admit to being present during Brian's murder, but tried to place the blame on Norma. Both girls were charged and a trial date was set. I'm going to talk a little bit about her early life now. Um, so Mary was born to Betty, a 16-year-old sex worker who reportedly told doctors to take that thing away from me when she saw her daughter. Things went downhill from there. Betty was often away from home on, inverted commas, business trips to Glasgow, but her absences were periods of respite for young Mary, who was subject to abuse, both mental and physical, when her mother was present. Betty's own sister witnessed Betty trying to give Mary away to a woman who'd been unsuccessfully trying to adopt. Sounds horrible, but lucky escape for that woman. I mean, it depends, because if, had she been with that woman, would things be completely different? That's yeah. the thing. That's what swings us between was she away, was she not? Mm. Is it nature, is it nurture? Mm. The butterfly effect, doesn't it? Everything could have been different in her life. Yeah, for you. You can see both sides there, with nature being, obviously, no, sorry, like nurture being that was her mother, but also her mother's nature in trying to give away her own child, but then... yeah. Also, how much of that is her mother's, like, generations of nurture yeah. in a deprived life that it's not just her mother, it's her mother's mother and father and parents going back. Yeah, it's it's all generational, whether that actually made a difference each generation coming. Mary was also strangely accident prone. She once fell from a window on another, and on another occasion, inverted commas, accidentally overdosed on sleeping pills. So it's like, oh, she was accident prone. But Mary's fall out of the window did result in brain damage, specifically to her prefrontal cortex, where decision-making occurs. Um, but many experts focus on the abuse that Belle suffered at the hand of her mother as to what led to such atrocious crimes. So, I mean, it's another aspect you need to consider when did she understand, did she not? Maybe she didn't. Well, if, because you think if you have, I mean, what's the serial killer checklist? If you've had like Mm -hmm. a brain injury, particularly as a child, it's very, very common that people, I mean, I'm not saying everyone who's had a brain injury goes on to kill people, but I'm saying in terms of like serial killers and mass murderers, it's quite a common thing that's ticked. It's like, you know, like we were saying last week, it's the red flags, isn't it? I'm adding to my list and it's getting scary. <laughs> my dad dropped me on my head once as a child. Oh, Connor, I don't think you should come to our house anymore. I think if you want a podcast about serial killers, I'd make a great case. <laughs> <laughs> Some attribute the accidents to Betty's determination to rid herself of her child, while others see the symptoms of Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Betty longed for the attention and sympathy of her daughter's accidents. According to later accounts given by Mary herself, her mother forced her into sexual acts with men when she was just four years old, though this remains uncooperated by family members. They did know, however, that Mary's young life had already been marked by a loss. 
she had seen her five-year-old friend run over and killed by a bus. So, I mean, what is she, like, ten years old? She's already seen a friend be killed. She's been pushed out of a window. And pushed out of a window. And, and made she's been subject... overdose on pills. Yeah, and she's been subject to sexual abuse. This is what makes it difficult to understand whether she understood. Yeah, because you think any kind of trauma, no matter what age you are, it affects the way that you think about situations and the way that you deal with situations. Yeah. As a child, like, let's all remember... She's a child, like, she was 11 when she committed her last murder. Like, whether or not she understood the permanence of death or anything like that, by that point, she'd already faced more trauma than, I think, a lot of people people have in their whole lives. For weeks before her first murder, Mary had been acting strangely. On May 11th, 1968, Mary had been playing with a three-year-old boy when he was badly injured from a fall off the top of an air raid shelter. His parents thought it was an accident. But the following day, three mothers came forward to tell the police that Mary had attempted to choke their young daughters. A brief police interview and a lecture resulted, but no charges were filed. Do you know what just sprung to mind? Mm. You know that's, you know an orphan? Where she, like, pushes the little girl off the top of the slide and all the parents are like, oh, she's fallen, she's hurt herself. And actually it was the child, but, like, nobody else can see that. Yeah. And like, I'm not saying that Mary, you know, definitely pushed this child off, but... But that's what it seems like. Yeah, it's yeah. like, it kind of... What is it? You know, it's like the steps, it's the, like, the progress that you see. It's like you start from this point, so it might be threatening people um and then it goes on and it goes up and up and up and then it escalation that was the word i was looking for escalates it's why they focus so much on kids who abuse animals isn't it because it's seen as a step towards Mm -hmm. eventually becoming a serial killer yeah or no something well it's the psychopath checklist isn't it Mm. um that there's i think there's like Oh, God, this is really fine now that Connor's also a psychopath. Yeah. Everything we say about serial killers should be like, oh shit, it's me. (laughs) You can tick off. You're going to be like, tick, tick, tick. (laughs) I definitely have psychopathic tendencies. I have a book called The Guide to Being a Good Psychopath, uh, which is a brilliant book if anyone wants to read it. But it basically says that everyone has psychopathic tendencies and it's just whether you use them for good or evil. Mm. Mm. It's really interesting. I'll lend it to you because... You are definitely a psychopath. Okay, so a little bit about the trial. At trial, the prosecutor told the court that Belle's reason for committing the murders was solely for the pleasure and excitement of killing. Meanwhile, the British press referred to her as evil born, which is, I think, where we begin to struggle with the nature versus nurture. Yeah. And also the way the press sensationalise it. Definitely. Is that this, like, she's a poor girl from a awful background and they call it evil born and it's like it's a very much a blanket statement yes it is it really is the jury agreed that mary bell had committed the murders and handed down a guilty verdict in december manslaughter not murder was the conviction as the court psychiatrist had convinced the jury that mary bell showed classic symptoms of psychopathy and could not be held fully responsible for her actions. Norma Bell was regarded as an unwilling accomplice 
who had fallen under bad influence, so she was acquitted. The judge concluded that Mary was a dangerous person and a serious threat to other children. She was sentenced to be imprisoned at Her Majesty's pleasure, a British legal term that denotes an indeterminate sentence, basically until the powers that be feel that it's appropriate for you to be let out. I always think that uh, at Her Majesty's pleasure sounds much nicer than it is. Mm. Sounds almost sexy. Oh, Her Majesty's <laughs> pleasure. <laughs> like the Queen is just there. <laughs> I do not want to think about it. <laughs> Come serve me at Her Majesty's That's pleasure. worse, because no one could see what you were doing. <laughs> Apparently, the powers that be were impressed with Belle's treatment and rehabilitation and felt like it was appropriate to let Mary Bell out in 1980. She was released on licence, which meant that she was technically still serving her sentence, but was able to do so while living in the community under strict probation. So 1980, how long had she served for then? 12 years. That's like her entire life again, but I know it's... To put it into perspective, she was only 23 when she came out. Mm. So she was our age. Con, shall we make you something different because you obviously hate your cocktail? Yeah, I am not a Bloody Mary fan. (laughs) We have concluded that Ellie is the only one. Maybe you're a psychopath because you like Bloody Mary. Or maybe you're both just children and you need like older taste buds to appreciate a Bloody Mary. Well, I'm. Black coffee and eat cheese boards for dessert. Come on. (laughs) I do love a cheese board. On that note, I'm going to make Connor a vodka lemonade. Pro black coffee would be good. So I'd just like to point out to all our listeners that uh, Molly and Connor have decided to reject our themed cocktail for this week. Connor's now drinking black coffee and Molly's drinking Pinot Grigio. Classy, classy <laughs> lady. We have freedom of drink, Ellie. You can't police us. <laughs> we tried really hard. I mean, I didn't try at all, but Connor <laughs> tried. I took like three sips of pasta sauce before I decided it was not worth it. <laughs> it was like... You were, I kept on seeing you sort of like looking at it being like, I really want to drink, but I don't want to drink fat. <laughs> it's literally, I was like, oh my God, like, just razor blades, there is nothing worse. And mine was just carrot juice and vodka. <laughs> I couldn't have had another one, even if I'd have tried my hardest, so. Oh. I am still drinking Bloody Cheers. Marys because I'm still interested in the theme. Okay, <clears throat> moving on swiftly. So, Mary served 12 years in prison for her crime, both in secure units and then in prison. She was the only girl among 20 or so boys at an approved school in Merseyside. Now, this is taken from The Guardian. This is a quote. She was allegedly subject to sexual abuse by a member of staff and also by fellow inmates, to which the rest of the staff turned a blind eye. Unsurprisingly, she was then often a mutinous Mutinous is a lovely word, sorry. Uh, she was often a mutinous prisoner. Not in this context. <laughs> Not in this prison. Uh, she once actually escaped prison uh, and received, obviously, a lot of press attention for mm. that. This is, again, like, it brings me back to... It's, it's that conflict of, do you feel sorry for her? Do you not? Because she's, you know... Essentially, she was like abused as a child. She committed these terrible crimes, and then it's almost like she escaped it. She got mm. away from that situation, 
and then she gets put into a different situation and history's repeating itself. Yeah. Yeah. I have this on my shelf today. I don't know what I was going to say. It's just so hard to justify her actions, yet when you look at her circumstances, it's also hard to be so hard on her. That sounds horrible yeah. because yeah. she is a murderer. But, I mean, she was abused as a child. She did her time, which a judge decided yeah. for her to do. Do you let her have peace or do you not? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's so difficult. It's like looking at Shipman like we did last week, and it, I do find it harder to sympathise with a middle-class doctor than I do with someone who has, yeah, who's got this background of suffering and did things, as I said before, like at the age of 10, 11. Did I really understand death? I can't look back and tell you. No. Yeah, and it's coming from that background of trauma traumatisation rather than just, like with Harold Shipman, it was entitlement. Yes. This, I think, is coming from a very different place. Like, yes, it's still terrible crimes, but it's not because she decided, I'm going to do these things. I, I, Well, I mean, I don't know. No, but you hit the nail on the head when you said it. it's more to do with her background and her suffering than it is to do with the entitlement. Yeah, because like, which is, I think, what people need to... Understand. It's just so difficult. It's because such a hard Half one. of me wants to empathise and the other half thinks, well, she has murdered two boys. You know, and you never know where to stand. The other day when we were watching The Joker mm-hmm. and you said, I don't know whether I should root for him or root against Have him. Have you seen? Oh, yeah. oh, we watched it together. <laughs> Have I yeah. seen it? Yes, I was closer to the screen than you would actually. <laughs> but that's what I, yeah, I struggled with watching the whole film because I could not place myself mm-hmm. in whether I should be on his side or not. Yeah. And that yeah. is exactly how I feel with this. I'm reading some facts and thinking, well, she had probably one of the most horrific childhoods that I've ever heard of. Yeah. And then reading other things saying, she suffocated these young boys. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you, you, I just never know where to stand. You, re- you get more and more in depth and it just gets even more confusing and yeah. conflicting. Because a lot of cases that you look at, I mean, we're all slightly weird people so we've always looked at true crime mm-hmm. and you often you want to see that black and white case of like they were this person as a child and then they were this person as an adult and they committed these crimes for x y and z reasons when it's something like this where it's like she committed these crimes we don't really know exactly why because she's never as far as i like research she's never said exactly why she did it but this is you know it's like classic nature versus nurture that we were talking about earlier whether if she hadn't have had that upbringing like if she'd been adopted by that that woman Mm -hmm. you know as a child whether that would have changed the outcome whether she wouldn't have committed these crimes it's It's, so yeah it's such a hard one and the other thing i find difficult is who she killed a common thread in of why we don't see a lot of female serial killers as well is that a lot of women murder to get out of a horrific situation mm-hmm. or young girls even you know and they end up being committed for crimes which you can justify entirely a lot of them are crimes of passion for yeah women. killing their abusers or you know mm-hmm. even less justifiably but also you can see when they caught catch their husband cheating and in the moment yeah with this she's not killed her captor you know she's not 
she's not gotten back at her mother. She's killed two young boys who everyone presumed she was playing with. Yeah. yeah. I'm not saying that nothing else could have gone on that could have caused her to do that, but it just seemed... It's like how we spoke about Harold Shipman in that he was such a coward going for the, uh, the elderly women in that she targeted these young boys because they couldn't really defend themselves. Yeah. And it's that kind of thing, like, repeating itself. Yeah, it's the kind of... It's the... I don't want to... Like, the sort of easy access. Like, yeah. the people that... I mean, because we watched that documentary earlier, didn't we? And it was talking about um, how kids as young as three were just out playing on the street all day. And it was just the norm. Yeah. Like, when the three-year-old boy that she killed didn't come home, no one thought anything of it for hours because it was completely normal. Yeah, so it's like, it's that... It's not a strange thing for kids to be out and about playing wherever... I mean, well, they called it Rat Alley, didn't they? Yeah. Um, which was like an area of waste ground that was uh, slum housing, essentially, that was going to be demolished, but was still in the process of being demolished. And all the kids just used to play there. So that's why, you know, they were they were playing in derelict houses because they were just there and it was just... That was normality for them. Yeah. yeah. So I think when you get to sort of later cases, so you get to sort of like the 90s and you then start it starts to be that kids weren't out playing so if a child didn't come home it was immediately like a red flag why aren't they home what's happened Mm. whereas you know in the 60s it's sort of oh they haven't come home oh they're they're probably a bit further away that they'll come home soon yeah there's no immediate where are they what's happened plus you don't have all the now, I mean, you go literally anywhere, you're on camera, you turn the corner, there'll, there'll be a camera somewhere, mm. whether someone's got it outside the house or it's outside the shop or on a traffic light, there's cameras everywhere, so every move's tracked. Anyway, I feel like I massively rambled. <clears throat> so, in 1980, as we said earlier, Belle was 23 when she was released. She was granted anonymity, including a new name, at which allowed her to start a new life. Now, we don't know a lot about what happened during that time, but allegedly she did go back to Tyneside on several occasions, had lived there for some time after her release. Four years after finishing her sentence, she had a daughter on the 25th of May, 1984. So yeah, that's got to be a bit of a weird, like, every year, her daughter's birthday, also the date she committed her first murder. So Mary's daughter actually knew nothing of her mother's past, until 1998 when reporters discovered their location and the pair had to leave home with bed sheets over their heads that's got to be quite a horrible thing like we were talking about this earlier weren't we mm. you know you kind of you grow up and your parents tell you like bits and bobs about their sort of childhood and their lives before you came around and obviously it's not a it's not a casual thing you mention oh, when I was your age, I committed my first murder. Like, yeah. you don't, you wouldn't do that. Oh, hey, what did you learn about in year six? Not much. I was out killing people. Yeah, but then to hear it from, like, a journalist, not... Okay. Uh, there's never going to be a good way to hear about it, but particularly from someone that sought out your situation and has come in and said, oh, did you know? That's got to be a horror... 14... 
I don't think I could have coped with that when I was 14. It's a weird fine line when they publish a picture of a murderer in a newspaper mm. and they give them a name and they say where they're from and they say how their wife and children and I know they're a murderer they should have in this, like there's two sides of me that say they should have no right to anonymity they've done awful things but also in this age of social media and in that age of like the 24-hour news cycle mm-hmm. your kids get caught up in it and they've done nothing yeah and like i said before it's difficult because she was subject to all this abuse she did these horrible things but the court's sentenced her to 12 years in prison and she served those 12 well, years. they didn't even sentence her to 12 years. No. They sentenced her indefinitely. It could have been forever. So she served those 12 years. Yeah. She left. And it's that horrible decision of does she deserve anonymity or not? And part of me thinks she's done her time. She should. She should be able to move on with her life. And then half of me thinks but she did commit these horrible crimes and are the families of the boys going to feel like it's not justified or mm. I don't know it's just so difficult yeah because you think especially the age she was she wasn't an adult when she committed these crimes it you know so there was no like you think about it she was 23 when she was released she was 11 when she committed her last murder that's a big chunk of time you think your time between 11 I mean well you guys are getting there nearly <laughs> I like how I went, mm-hmm, when neither of us like, 23. No, you're both 22. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you guys are like nearly 23. Mm-hmm. And that that's a massive gap. To that's, think that's of our your... time from leaving primary school yeah. to now. Those yeah, are... how much of my life has changed. Like... Yeah, over those years. And you think... And it's so difficult to make the decision on how you rule somebody else's life. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, I know that they've committed this horrible horrible crime but is my life that much more important than theirs in terms of how they're justifying their time that doesn't make sense say that who are we to decide that an 11 year old has grown up enough already for us to justify putting her away for life that's exactly (laughs) i'm not even going to try and expand on it because you yeah that's exactly what i was trying to say like we can't make that decision no and i don't think anyone can. I was listening to um, The Secret Barrister, really good book, worth listening to because it explains the British legal system and all its, the ways it does things well and also its biggest flaws and it talks about the judges and the magistrate system and how privileged they are. This judge who in his 60s has always dined in Michelin star restaurants, the worst he ever had was a caning at school. Mm-hmm. Like, who is he, or well, I was going to say, or she, but let's be honest, who is he to decide? Yeah. Yeah, that she should have risen above that at the age of 10, 11. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What right does he have to say, well, if I'd been put in your situation, I would have lived life completely different? You just don't You don't know. know if you're not in that situation. And you can never put yourself in somebody else's no. shoes. Like, oh, there's mm. the saying, put yourself in their shoes, but you can never fully do that and you will never fully understand other people's circumstances. Yeah, and you can empathise and you can relate it to things that you've dealt with yourself. We'll never know what was going through her head at the time because none of us, you know, none of us can do that. None of us can look into her brain. So Belle's daughter's anonymity was originally only protected until she was 18. But on the 21st of May 2003, Belle actually won a high court battle to have her anonymity and her daughter's extended for life. Consequently, 
any court order that permanently protects the identity of a convict in Britain is known as a Mary Bell order in some cases. The order was later updated in 2009 to include her granddaughter, who was only referred to on documents as Zed. So I think it's quite a strange thing because, you know, it, we're not going just Mary Bell now. It, it's the daughter and the granddaughter, and those people will now have to live in that anonymity mm -hmm. and potentially having to move every so often because the press find them and are trying to get information and know where they live because I mean there, there's photos of Mary Bell from sort of like the late 80s yeah which is quite sad at that point because she's trying to do everything she can to take a step back and say okay I, I'm not we don't know you know how much actually changed but she's trying to take a, take a step back and be away from it yeah move on with her life to the extent that she can yeah because she's lost 12 years of her life and it's also like so this is her granddaughter. So this is two generations away, mm -hmm. still being tainted with her mm -hmm. actions. Yeah. So it's like her granddaughter has had no nothing to do with any of her, her previous actions, mm -hmm. and yet she is still subject to the moving, the false names, mm -hmm. the press still trying to get hold of them. So the thing is, that's two thousand and nine. That order came through. Facebook had been out for three years by this point. Mm -hmm is that it's not just the press, because the press are bound by so many laws. But the same thing happened with uh, in the John Venables case mm -hmm. recently, where pictures were leaked on Twitter, even though they're guaranteed lifelong anonymity. The Sun can't publish it, but you can. Yeah. Or you might get taken down for it, but no one's really going to do no anything. If a, if a million people on Twitter decide to expose you, mm -hmm. they're not going to prosecute those million people. Yeah. Yeah, I can understand why you'd be so keen to protect your granddaughter in that definitely, case. Definitely, definitely. I don't think anyone would, would question that. No, whether... because regardless yeah. of what crimes were committed in the past, that granddaughter, and the, the daughter as well, that's nothing to do with her past. Yeah, whether you agree or disagree that Mary Bell herself should have had anonymity, it's got absolutely nothing to do with her daughter and granddaughter. Yeah, completely. And I think the way that they've been targeted is just completely Because I think it's that, because we have a quite a strange culture, I think, in the UK of, I mean, I, I think America does to a certain extent as well, but, but you see, like, the tabloid newspapers and what they've done over the, over the years of targeting vulnerable people. And, I mean, you look at, what was it, News of the World that yeah. hacked loads of people's voicemails and yeah. stuff, and... It's the strange tabloid press that's like, we must know what's going on with these people's lives. No matter what consequences it may yeah, have. Yeah, it's like, them fuck us. the consequences, we've got to know. Yeah. And while I do understand that in certain instances, so like, you know, I am also investigative... Investigative? Investigative journalism. I, I do think there's got to be a line drawn and when it comes... So the fact that... Mary Bell's daughter didn't know about the crimes and then learnt basically from, from a journalist at the age of 14. That That's not right. That's not fair to either of them, like Mary Bell or her daughter. That, that's not the situation it should have been. I find that a bit difficult, though, I'll be honest, in that, no, she shouldn't have found out at 14 from a journalist, but... 
we talk about her right to anonymity and you mm. know, kind of is her mother's right to anonymity. Does she have a right to know and when? Mm. I think she does have a right to know, and I think she should have known by then. But I do think the right was still with her mother. Yeah. To let her know, and I think the timing is difficult mm-hmm. because when do you tell your child that you've mm. murdered people? But I think the right to tell her was Mary Bell's. Yeah. I I just I can't I can't justify her having to find out in any other way. It must have been so hard for Mary to broach a subject, but I don't think anyone else has the right to tell her. And interesting then that in two thousand and three Mary Bell was still fighting herself for her daughter's right to anonymity. Yeah. We don't know what these women have made of themselves over the years. We don't know who they are, whether she might even have other children, whether she's... But the crazy thing is, is, like, obviously, well, no, not obviously, but probably not us, but it could be, like, your pharmacist or the woman mm. working in your corner shop or absolutely anyone, but you wouldn't know. And I think that's, that's the... Because it's that point of, like, when, like, I mean, you mentioned, like, the John... What was it? John Venables? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, so they were granted anonymity and then... They were both outed, and now one of them is back in prison. But it's that, should you know because of the potential that the crimes they committed, they didn't actually repent and change, and they would then go on to commit other crimes? Or do you grant them anonymity? And like Maribel, as far as we all know, she just wanted to move on with her life. And how much are we allowed to control someone's life once they've served their time? You know, she served her time. It's not like she was in for a year and got out. Like, she served 12 years. 12 years is a really long time. Who are we to decide what justifies their actions? Yeah. And I don't think we can. And, like, from what we can tell with Mary Bell, she's tried to kind of get on the straight and narrow. We... From what we know, she hasn't committed any more crimes. Yeah. That's, this is where I see anonymity, like, coming into play in that I feel she deserves to live the rest of her life to the best that it can be. It will never be great because of these circumstances. Mm -hmm. But like you said, with the whole John Venables, that's where the line gets blurred. And I think you can't just make a blanket decision on things like this and circumstances come into play. I think that's always the biggest thing. It's you have to look at the circumstances. So, like, for example, when a woman kills her abuser, you can't necessarily put that in the same bracket as someone that commits a murder for other reasons. You have to, I think, well, I mean, I, this is the way, I think I'm not saying this is how laws should work, but, like, you know, Ellie is the law now. <laughs> I now make all of the rules. I have decided the law. I have crowned myself Queen of Wales, and these are all the rules we're going to follow. Some people don't feel that Mary Bell deserves the protection of anonymity. June Richardson, the mother of Martin Brown, has told the media that it's all about her and how she has to be protected. As victims, we were never given the same rights as the killers. I just wanted to... I just wanted to mention a little bit about the media that you can look into. So, Mary Bell is the subject of two books by Jeter Sereny. The first 
book was called The Case of Mary Bell, 1972, an account of the killings and trials. And then Cries Unheard, the story of Mary Bell, in 1998, was an in-depth biography based on the interviews with Mary Bell herself and her relatives, her friends, uh, and also professionals who knew her during and after her imprisonment. And the second book was the first to detail Belle's account of her sexual abuse at the hands of her mother. There's also a film called Where's Mary, which was released in 2005, which has really good reviews. Um, you can find it online and it's very informative. There's also, me and Ellie came across, a play, which is on YouTube. It's three parts. It's called Mary Bell by Mary Bell. It's like, it's really bizarre. It's a full-on show. So it's, a, it's like a dramatisation, essentially, of the, the whole Mary Bell story. It's real-life theatre. It's three parts. The first part is based on the actual trial, and then part two and three are kind of like a prequel. Yeah, so, so it's like the crimes and sort of her life. It was very interesting. Very weird. Very informative. Very weird, but we were transfixed, weren't we? In that we've done so much research on this, we've watched the documentaries, and we still couldn't not watch it. So if you wanted to watch it, it's on YouTube. It is on YouTube. Like I would recommend it, but be prepared. It is a it like it's strange. It I think it's always weird when you see anything like that. That's it's difficult to make a show about true crime. As we're recording a podcast, I literally about just crime. understood what I said as I said it. That it's difficult. Sad. It's hard, guys. So hard. It's sad. It's great, so much. Yeah, as yeah. we're three episodes into a true crime podcast. <laughs> I don't understand my pain. And I wanted to end on a quote from Mary Bell herself, and it is If I was a judge and I had an 11 year old who'd done this, I'd give her 18 months. Murder isn't that bad. We all want to die sometime anyway. Is that a quote from Mary Bell, did you mm-hmm. say? Yeah. So it just flips Whoa. you into another level of, did she understand? Didn't she understand? Yeah. Every single bit I hear about it this changes story your opinion. Yeah. 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 Completely. I think Mary Bell, as much as I've looked into her, obviously I, I'm not a psychologist or anything, but... I would view Mary Bell as quite a classic psychopath in terms of lack of emotion. So, I mean, some of the documentaries we we looked at earlier were talking about how her school, her school friends, not school friends, people that were in school with her sort of viewed her as someone you don't mess with, but she didn't have any emotion. She wouldn't, uh, she didn't have that. She didn't have the connection. Evidence of that is she later stated that she told the two boys that she strangled that she was going to give them a massage because they had sore throats and she'd be able to help them. And then she would then strangle them to death. And it's like, that just shows the lack of emotion to be able to lure them in like that Mm. and then commit such a horrendous crime. Mm. I think this whole case, the more and more that you read into it, the more conflicted you're going to feel. You turn a corner yeah. and you feel sorry for her, you turn another corner and you can't believe her horrendous actions. And I honestly don't think I'll ever come to a conclusion in how I feel mm. about this case. No, and I, I think the 
the thing that I sometimes forget actually when I look into this is the two boys she actually murdered were four and three. As much as we're saying, you know, however we feel about Mary Bell, two very young children lost their lives and this wasn't some tragic accident. This was, whether it was premeditated or not, this was a brutal incident. And I think sometimes in, in situations like this, we do forget that, because as much as, personally, I do slightly view Mary Bell as a victim. I think she was a victim of her circumstance. She then also created a situation for two boys' families that they've never been able to get over. I mean, we're, we're talking years and years ago now, but this is still something that they live with. This is a, a child that never grew up. This is always going to be those two small boys that never kind of achieved their full potential. And in situations like this, we so I think particularly with Mary Bell, I think we do not forget, but we tend to focus on her and how we feel about her. But we've got to remember, yeah, two children lost their lives because of her. And I think, listeners, that's where we should probably... Uh... God, I always feel so bad because we yeah. end on such a bad note because you can't end on a joke. No. I think we do tend to end on a negative and with the knowledge as well that we have just scratched the surface mm-hmm. in this podcast and now we have scratched the surface. So please go off, do your own research, come to your own conclusions as to how you feel about this. We just exist to give our own opinions. Frank, you've got us on social media. We'll let you know or start hinting as to what our next case might be in the next week or so. You can also find the cocktail measurements online if you are a disgusting human being who likes Bloody Marys. Bloody Marys are lovely. <laughs> don't, don't listen to the terrible things. She lies. Never listen to a single one of Ellie's opinions ever again. Yeah, you, you probably shouldn't listen to me, actually. I've got some horrible opinions. Also, if there are any true crimes or murders that you'd like us to cover, please send them into our Gmail, which is icanmurderofcocktail at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) I Could Murder a Cocktail is an independent podcast produced by Ellie Layden, Molly Dacey and Connor Hall, researched by Ellie Layden and Molly Dacey and edited by Connor Hall.